Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. Or more familiarly, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. From its beginnings as a minority religious community in the midst of Roman military rule, to its status today as a majority faith in a secular American democracy, the church and state are like the odd old crotchety couple who have been in the neighborhood forever. It's not at all clear that they should have gotten together in the first place. It's very difficult to tell what is really going on in the relationship. But given they've been seen together for so long, it's awfully hard to imagine, it, to imagine them not occupying the same space. Full disclosure that when I looked at the lesson for this Sunday, I immediately made plans to preach the Exodus reading. It's one of my absolute favorite readings, and I'll say a brief word about it later on. But after being in our Bible studies, both the men's and women's Bible studies this week, and hearing the different perspectives on the church and politics, I just can't resist the minefield. I say it's a minefield. Because, well, it is. On the one hand, we don't want politics discussed in church. Well, maybe in the church, but not from the pulpit. Please remind us about God's love and faith and prayer. But would rather not church feel like CNN? On the other hand, we know that politics is a part of our lives, and Whatever else church is, it's a gracious accepting and drawing out of every part of us. We are political animals, said Aristotle, no use denying this bit of our humanity. A church without political engagement isn't fully the church. But it's not so simple. It's not so simple. For if we talk about politics from the pulpit, Here's where it gets sticky. We implicitly prefer it to be our politics, the issues that move us. Politics from the pulpit, as long as it's a hallowing of our own persuasions. Progressive and conservative churches and ministers therein do often preach on politics. I'm actually not concerned about Because for me, it's not nearly as hard preaching politics in the pulpit as it is preaching Jesus in the pulpit. He's far more divisive, and he will never let us pin him down. So I ask mostly seriously, can we still preach Jesus in the pulpit? That seems like a riskier question. Well, so it's a familiar gospel. The Herodians and the disciples of the Pharisees come to Jesus looking to entrap him. Hey, Jesus, we know you're a hotshot, a slick dude, someone who doesn't bend the knee to anyone or show any partiality. What do you say? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
And Jesus says, he looks around, does anyone have a quarter? Does anyone have a coin? As they reach for their pockets for a coin and wonder what he'll say, we should pause and consider the difficulty of the situation Jesus is in. Consider first the Herodians. These are a Hellenistic sect of Jews who support the rule and reign of the puppet king Herod, Herod's servant of the empire. The Herodians are Jews who've exchanged their religion for political allegiance. They're not exactly favorable people to the first century faithful. They're cynical sellouts to the state. And it's surprising that the Pharisees are keeping company with them. The Pharisees are the religious leaders who are ultra, ultra pious. If the Herodians are sellouts to the state, the Pharisees are sellouts to religion. They are hyper-concerned with obedience to the Torah, or better yet, their own interpretation of the Torah. The Pharisees are pious Jews, and they know that the denarius really could trip Jesus up. Because the coin with Caesar's image on it bears the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. Essentially saying, Caesar is the son of God. And on the other side is a picture of the high priest, the blessing of Roman religion upon Caesar's divinity. Caesar claims to be Lord and God, and if Jesus acknowledges the coin, he's breaking the first commandment, which forbids a Jew from having any God but the God of Israel. Notice the dilemma. Did Jesus just validate the Pharisees' religion and keep religion about the heart? Or will Jesus validate Caesar, siding with the Herodians, and thus reduce religion down to a function of the state? party politics. What concerns us about politics in the pulpit is narrow reductionism, the commodification or sloganization of language, the loss of depth and mystery in favor of the simplistic, that which can be hashtagged and liked and essentially controlled. Both sides want to domesticate the mystery of God's relationship to the world. If there's one thing that unites the Pharisees and the Herodians, it's that Jesus makes them profoundly uncomfortable. And Jesus catches the coin, he looks at it, and probably just tosses it right back to them with a kind of wry whimsy. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but remember to give everything that belongs to God to God. It's such a good answer. What is God's? What do we render to God? Well, of course, everything is. God is the creator and sustainer of life. God is the beginning of all things and the end for which all things tend. When we're in church together, I'll often receive the offering, the Sunday morning offering, and raise it up, and I'll say those traditional words all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. The coin bears Caesar's image, but all things, all people bear the divine image. Even creation itself burns with the energy of divine beauty 
an image. And this is what makes Jesus such a threat. As his questioners say, he shows no partiality. There's no place he'll go where he won't see the image of God. There's no coin grubby enough, no life spent enough, no body wounded enough, no soul, no soul sinful enough, no face worn enough. His presence polishes out the divine image wherever he goes. And what drives the Pharisees nuts is that Jesus keeps company with people he shouldn't. Remember who his best friends were? The tax collectors and the sinners, the unclean and the non-religious. The Pharisees fear that Jesus is up to something more than validating their spirituality. He's establishing a kingdom that trades in an entirely different currency. But notice, too, how his answer might tick the Herodians off. For Caesar's image is on the coin, but of course, Caesar is in God's image, too. Caesar has dignity, but he's not divine. Even Jew-despising, power-hungry, vain old Caesar has the flicker of the divine light in him, and he must be rendered to God. It's worth pausing here and giving a quick look at our Exodus reading that Jack read so well for us. Moses and God, it's a familiar reading. Moses and God are having this intimate exchange on the mountaintop when finally Moses gets bold and says, God, show me your glory. And God says, no one can see my face and live. Instead, Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock and feels the goodness of God blow across his face. And he just catches a glimpse of God's back. This is a great mystery, what to make of this story. And the rabbis and all of their, their typical exegetical exuberance have countless ideas about why it is. Is it divine humility or courtesy that doesn't want to show off? Is it a testament that we can only see God's action in history in hindsight from behind? But I also think the simple point here is that God is not here to appear before us so as to make us certain, so as to make us to be able to see and be certain of him. God moves ahead of us to be followed. And God leads Moses down off the mountaintop, and as the chapter continues, we see that he leads Moses right into the thick of disobeying, debauched, fickle, calf-worshipping humanity. If you want to see my image and my presence, you'll have to find it here. And Jesus, the one who finds the divine image in the poor, in the broken, in the tax collectors, in every last soul, he too forever eludes our certainty. Jesus is the one who is fully God and fully human which is to say his life is one long association with God and one long association with the unworthy, the sinners, people who are broken. We as Americans, as affiliates of the right and left, come to Jesus looking for him to bless our politics and our religion. And he replies to us, before we talk about that, 
Let me ask you first. Who are you willing to associate with? There will never be a static answer to the question of Jesus in the political realm because Jesus is not a static Lord. There will never be a Christian religion or preacher that adequately sums Jesus up. Both the Herodians and the Pharisees want to trim Jesus down to fit into their world. And Jesus says, in effect, to them, I've come to draw you into mine. And Jesus, Jesus, I presume, is not here to tell us who to vote for. His, me his message is far more radical. He's here to invite us to associate with the tax collectors and the broken people and the people on the other side of the line. He's here to draw out the divine beauty in Caesars and in sinners. Sometimes that will come as a word of mercy and sometimes a word of judgment. And to be Jesus's church, we must consider who the political realm has deemed worthy and we must find Jesus among the unworthy. We can't pin him down. We can only follow him in our own stumbling and human way. Who has society deemed unworthy? Is it the imprisoned, or the poor, the black lives, or the wounded earth beneath our feet? Take these last two, black lives and the earth. For me, these are not merely partisan issues, political issues. Black bodies and our fragile earth have been coined, spent, and misused and disregarded like loose change by our society for centuries. And when we engage in climate justice as a church, when we engage in racial justice, we do so not because of an affiliation with a party, but because of our Lord who draws out the divine image where it's been covered over and neglected and left on the curb. Friends, we must render to God what is God's, and that means everything, and that includes our politics. And so it's a given, I take it as a given, that we must vote. It's a Christian duty to vote. Voting is a human and democratic activity and with everything, it must be rendered to God. We must vote in favor not of the coin that benefits us, with that great abstraction called the economy, but for the neglected coin, the one Caesar or society says holds new value. But let's not stop with a vote. Because likely, likely God cares less about which party we affiliate ourselves and more about the people we are willing to associate ourselves. No matter what happens, our Lord moves ahead of us, drawing out the divine image at the heart of creation, most of all in the neglected. And it turns out, to try and keep up with Jesus is the most political thing we can do.